Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, tenure for Pulitzer Prize winner Nicole Hannah-Jones is back on the table at UNC Chapel Hill. We'll talk about her acclaimed 1619 project, critical race theory, and the challenges she and other black women face when pursuing positions of leadership. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Back in April, the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media proudly announced the appointment of Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones as the Knight Chair in Race and Investigative Journalism. The lauded career work of Hannah-Jones no doubt helped qualify her for the distinguished position, but also has drawn criticism from conservative groups. Now the nature of the position is in question and groups nationwide are not happy. Here to discuss it with us, I'd like to welcome Dr. Trebby McDonald, Director of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at the Hussman School. I will note that PBS North Carolina is licensed to the University of North Carolina system. Dr. McDonald, thank you so much for joining us. I want to open up by just having you to explain the structure of the UNC uh, Journalism Hussman School and faculty and where DEI fits within that. Oh, absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me, Deborah. The Hussman School of Journalism and Media is one of the professional schools at UNC Chapel Hill. Like other top journalism schools and programs, we are accredited by the Accrediting Council for Education in Journalism and Mass Communications, known as ACEJMC. ACEJMC has nine accrediting standards. Standard number three is diversity, and standard number four pertains to faculty and staff. Because we are a professional school, we have to have a balance of faculty from research backgrounds, and those are PhDs who do traditional scholarly research, as well as professional backgrounds of journalists, photojournalists, public relations practitioners, people who have background in advertising creative, as well as executive. Uh, our goal is to train students to ignite the public conversation. We're training future journalists and strategic communicators. And who better to train them than a faculty with a mix of the research background and the professional background? Certainly, and can you tell us a little bit more about the Knight Chair position and the role of tenure in it? Absolutely, so the Knight Chair position is endowed by, the, it's endowed by support from the Knight Foundation. And the purpose of it is to identify leading journalists for these professorships at top universities around the country. These professors come in and teach innovative classes as well as develop projects and programs that advance journalism and media. So we, um, we go ahead. And we know that this position requires a very rigorous process, um, actually obtaining tenure and I think what's been in question is the option to include tenure in this. And you yourself know how rigorous uh, that process is. But can you talk about the role of tenure in this and, and what that tenure um, offers, how, why that's so important? Absolutely. So let me first state that Nicole is the fifth night chair that we've had in the school. We've had four other night chairs starting in 1986 with Bob Lauderborn, who came from industry and did not have prior academic background. 
Uh, Phil Meyer was the second. He had been a professor at the school. And then Penny Muse Abernathy had been an executive on the business side of journalism with the Wall Street Journal and New York Times and Joanne Sherino. Neither of them had extensive academic background prior. They were all appointed as tenured full professors. We've also had other faculty, uh, Tom Linden, who heads our medical journalism program and our dean who were appointed as tenured full professors without prior academic background. So with regards to the tenure process, the candidate or the faculty member produces a packet of their work, of their scholarship, of their service, and they submit it um, to the school. Then it is reviewed by external reviewers. So there can be anywhere from four to seven letters from full professors at peer institutions and programs who review very rigorously the package and make a recommendation. Those letters come back to the journalism school's promotion and tenure committee. They make a recommendation, full faculty votes, and then it goes up to the university committee. So there have been just already several extensive reviews. Uh, the, yes, uh, mm -hmm. please continue. And then the provost has to submit it to the board of trustees because all tenure cases have to be approved by the board of trustees as well as the board of governors. And is that where the, the issue began? That's where the issue began because um, our faculty fully supported, our full professor supported it in order for her package to be moved to the university committee. Let me the ask university. you this, as, as, you know, as a representative, certainly in DEI, what is your biggest concern about what has happened in this story? Number one, this is very clearly an equity issue. This is not consistent with what we have done in the past. And the big difference is number one, Nicole is a black woman. I'm just being uh, entirely honest. Our previous night cheers have all been white. There's not been an issue with regards to this. And then also the work that she does. Um, Nicole has built in her entire career on looking at racial inequity. She was a reporter for the Raleigh News and Observer. She looked at school equity and the racial achievement gap in Durham Public Schools. She worked for ProPublica, where she covered civil rights issues, fair housing, and school segregation and discrimination. And she's now with the New York Times, and she's just won numerous awards. Absolutely, and certainly, the, it certainly almost goes without saying, her work and, and founding of the 1619 Project. And there's so much more to be said about that. We're gonna be talking about it, but for now, I'd like to thank you for your time, Dr. Trevi McDonald, for coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Let's look further into the project that has generated so much angst among teachers, politicians, journalists, and historians. That is the 1619 Project and Critical Race Theory. I'd like to welcome Dr. Mark Anthony Neal, Chair of the Department of African and African American Studies at Duke University, and Lamicia Whittington with Advanced Carolina. So pleased to have both of you here for this conversation. And Dr. Neal, I'm gonna start with you. How would you describe the 1619 Project and its credibility as a resource for scholars and educators. It was absolutely an intervention, um, a way to recenter our conversation about American history by placing the experience of black folks and slavery at the center of that. What was critically important is that this was a journalistic project, right? So it harks back to the legacy of black journalists over the last 
few centuries had, who had been doing journalism that did that intervention before there was a structure like the academy that black scholars could belong to, right? So it, it fit into a broader tra a tradition of black journalists, right? You think about folks like Ida B. Wells Barnett uh, and even further back who tried to tell a different story, a more truthful story as it reflected the black experience in this country. And, and that's what the 1619 Project did. It was important that it was done by the New York Times and it was accessible, right, in the way that it was written, uh, in ways that were very different than reading, say, a 700-page historical narrative. So is that the key in the fact that this was a journalistic work, that it was accessible, or is there something else that um, compares it to, say, a historical work? No, I think that's important, right, because it really is doing history for the masses. Um, you know, to take it away from the ivory tower, to make it accessible and available to everyday folks. That, in fact, I think was the brilliance of the project. Thank you. And Lamisha, can you just share, what do you think some of the political concerns around the 1619 Project are? So for the last few years, as we've all noticed, um, you know, the elevations and outcry from community around state-sanctioned violence, the anti-police brutality, uh, the tearing down and dismantling Confederate statues, and oftentimes the inaccurate historical depictions that shroud those statues um, has, again, come from the community. And so the political response that's happening is really punishing that community for those outcries and punishing local electeds for responding to communities saying, okay, we need to reimagine not only our funding, but also our education and how we're saying what is the true historical depiction of racial violence in America. And so there are bills, and really let's back it up. Uh, Donald Trump in his final few months in office, he stated he would ban states from teaching the 1619 Project and critical race theory. He accused history educators of teaching children to hate their own country and convened a 1776 commission to promote patriotic education. This dog whistle is what allowed the impetus for four states to now have passed laws banning its schools and universities from talking about divisive concepts, that censorship, that's a dismantling of freedom of speech. And North Carolina is following suit. We have House Bill 324 that is trying to do the same thing if it is passed into law, and that's stopping critical race theory. And one thing, and I'll step back, critical race theory was found in 1970 established by Professor uh, Roy Brooks and other black academic scholars. This is not a new theory. So the excuse that this is, of course, 1619 is unfounded or, you know, not grounded in education. No, it's been founded since 1970. And the impetus for the 1619 project is giving, like, as, as the doctor already said, life and vitality to a curriculum that has been in existence for years and a suppression to stop that curriculum. I thank you for pointing that fact out. Critical race theory is not brand new. So thank you for bringing that up. The 1619 Project has indeed, however, been controversial, even among ac academics. Dr. Neal, can you share what some of the scrutiny and concerns or criticisms have been? You know, I don't want to dismiss, you know, these debates, but, you know, if you put five historians in a room, they're going to have a disagreement about details, right? And we shouldn't let those really substantive, in, in the sense that they are important, critical discussions, you know, overshadow the importance of the project, right? Historians are always going to have quibbles the way another historian interprets particular histories. Uh, but again, the overall project to recenter the gaze on the American experience through the experience of black folks and anti-black violence, right, and slavery is the critically important aspect to this, right? And, and think of 1619 as a portal, really, into these broader and deeper intellectual arguments. I like that, uh, just seeing that sort of as a central place 
from which to, to start understanding and the conversation. And there's just been a lot of fear around what this project is. It's a series of essays based on research, based on true stories uh, and accounts, and, and people need to, um, to see it, to read it, to listen to it. It's a project. And you know the term critical race theory has gained this notoriety, this negative connotation. But Dr. Neal, what can you share about what it really is doing, what it means to um, exercise critical race theory and how that can benefit anyone on either side of um, American history. You know, this is the thing, you know, what critical race theory has done most brilliantly is, is this idea that, for instance, the law is not objective, right? That it makes particular analysis based on gender, sexuality, race, and what critical race theory has done is raise the, the ante, right, to understand the ways that things that we think of as objective actually have racialized components. And what's so ironic about this moment and the ways that folks are reacting to it, you know, most of the folks who are put out there to talk about critical race theory are folks who don't have any intellectual relationship with it. Um, someone like Kimberly Crenshaw is still walking the earth. <laughs> Devin Carbardo is still walking the earth. You can sit down, you know, over the weekend and read Derek Bell's Faces at the Bottom of the Well, you know, as one of the most ex accessible versions of critical race theory. Um, so, you know, what we see is that Clearly, there are analyses that are being made now that are striking a chord that masses of folks have access to, and, and the powers that be are reacting to those pressures. Lamisha, considering you know critical race theory, and and I think that one of the big arguments that I've heard against this is that you know it's anti-American to speak of America in terms that are um, negative or that, that speak to some of the troubles that we've had. Is it anti-American to share the history? Do you understand where people are coming from when they talk about the anti-American aspect of 1619 or critical race theory? Let's really break down the, the definition of American for some folks. Uh, some folks still don't believe that black Americans are American. Uh, so it does go against their notion. Uh, and so we even see this as uh, let's be, you know, to answer your question, Deb, no, it's not un-American. Uh, we have contributed to the society in a way in which even in 1850, uh, upward three million enslaved people were worth three billion dollars to the U.S. economy and created the most millionaires in the U.S. South. So when we talk about the baseline and we built this country, that's not a, a ideology. That's that's an economic fact. Uh, and we continue to do that. And so when we're talking about anti-Americans, anti-Americans to suppress the true history and narrative of a people that have been in this country, but developed, built this country in addition to being here. Civil rights and the laws and even voting rights laws that have passed have been because the trauma and the exploitation of black bodies, but also our protests that led to those liberations. So it is our work and our trauma that has created other inroads for other communities and immigrant communities moving here to have freedom and civil rights to access the American dream. So, no, not un-American at all. Well, certainly critical race theory, as I have seen it actually, has been misused in some ways. So, Dr. Neal, you know, I think that what people are afraid of is what they have heard um, people misusing critical race theory as um, a diversity, equity, and inclusion kind of training tool. But how should it indeed be used by teachers, by anyone? 
again, to provide a different lens, um, a more balanced lens on how race functions in American society. It, you know, critical race theory feels, fills the gap of knowledge and information that exists, particularly in our K through 12 system, even in higher ed. And that's why critical race theory is so important at this point in time. And it's the reason why folks are pushing back, right? Because they're afraid of those gaps being filled in. While negotiations continue on the appointment of Nicole Hannah-Jones at UNC in Washington this week, Corrine Jean-Pierre stepped to the podium to lead a White House press briefing, becoming the first black woman in decades and first openly gay spokeswoman ever to do so. This also just after Kristen Clark was confirmed civil rights chief of the Justice Department and the first black woman to fill this role. So we're seeing greater representation of black women at the top. What has it taken to get there and what does it take to stay? Joining the conversation is Dr. Shante Williams, CEO of Black Pearl Global Investments and author of Black Angels, The Wealth Edition. We're so glad to have you joining us, Dr. Williams. In your work, when we think about what uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones is facing, how does that compare with what you have witnessed and experienced as a CEO and as an executive uh, African-American woman in leadership? Thanks for having me today. Um, her experience is, I think, the experience of lots of Black women who have made it to the top of an industry and organization. It's never enough. You know, the accolades, the Pulitzer Prize, the education, the experience, it's discounted. It's just never enough um, to really measure up to other folks. And so I've experienced that. I have uh, a, a doctorate and I've been told to go back to school to get extra um, training. So I've experienced it and, and it, it's discounted and it's it's sickening um, to see the talent uh, being discounted in that way. And how does that impact you personally and professionally just to kind of have to go through and consider that you're, you're always trying to do better or need to do better or be twice as good? I think early on, um, the best advice I ever got was, they're just as stupid as you are, which sounds like a terrible, um, a terrible thing to say to somebody. But it came from um, an advisor and a mentor that really said, you gotta shake loose all of that expectation or whatever other people are telling you um, that you, you're not enough, you're not measuring up. Um, I even, I dislike the, the notion of imposter syndrome at this point. No, there are people who are projecting that onto me. So um, it, it has affected me less over time, but it is tiring. Um, you know, I, I love the, the statement, we tired. Black women are tired of literally having to shoulder that burden, outperform and still be underpaid. Uh, so, you know, for me, it's continuing to shake it off. I'm sure she's shaking it off. I spread this morning that she's fighting. Um, and that's the same fight that all of us are, are on. And Lamisha, I want to get you in here because you work um, in academia, but also a nonprofit. Is it different in the nonprofit space? Uh, well, let's talk about for a moment historically. So historically, nonprofits uh, were created as a way to hide the wealth of, uh, you know, the white one percenters at the Great Depression era. It says charity, but it really wasn't charity for the people. It was charity for wealthy landowners and the one percenters. And so if we talk about the history grinding of like nonprofits as a corporation, uh, I love my organization. Uh, it's all black organization. We specialize in building black economic and political power, but that has taken a lot of labor a lot of love and a lot of just like, you know, long hours, uh, as the doctor Sean already mentioned. 
Um, but we can't talk about my experience in a vacuum. Uh, there are still misrepresentation of many of our people uh, in the hierarchies and power structures of nonprofits. And so that goes back to the, the historical uh, reflection of the nonprofit sector and how it was created. When we talk about two buckets, right, systemic change, even at the philanthropic level, our organizations only receive 2% of funding. Okay, that's, that's problematic, 2%. So how are we actually funding that work? And then two, uh, out of 100% of uh, executive directors and CEOs in nonprofits uh, across the United States, only 20% of people of color are in those director roles or CEO roles. Mm -hmm. So only 20% out of 80, that's the depiction of nonprofits. But it gets knocked down, I suppose, with all of these new positions in DEI. But Dr. Neal, you study gender relationships and culture. What can you share about the cultural environment black women enter in the leadership space and the barriers that they've had to overcome? I mean, you can just think about where black women are positioned in the socioeconomic structure in this country, um, where we think of them as, you know, as, at the bottom of the lowest uh, of the pole, right, in terms of uh, outcomes in terms of uh, salary, uh, wealth, right? and so it's all these dynamics of violence directed towards black women that doesn't get the same kind of coverage, you know, when that same kind of anti-black violence is directed towards men. But it, we also have to look at it in the context of representation. Um, when we look into popular culture, what are the representations of black women that circulate on a regular basis? This is why Kerry Washington's character in Scandal was so groundbreaking, right? Because it gave another version of representation. This is why Michelle Obama has been so critically important to our understanding of black women over the last 15 years, why Kamala Harris figures in the way that she does, why H Nicole Hannah-Jones is important to this conversation, because largely the society has rarely seen black women in being in positions of expertise, right, where their expertise is unquestioned, right? We rarely have seen that in American culture, right? And when it is presented to many Americans, they don't quite know what to do with it. That's so crazy, <laughs> but, but it's true. Um, and I, I want to move to talking about allyship because Oftentimes we can focus on, well, gee, what can we do as black women to be more accepted or to um, create a more welcoming environment? But let's, uh, Shantae, I want you to uh, talk about what people who are already in positions of leadership who are non-black can do to make sure that, it, that these barriers are removed. You know, the first thing they can do is start recognizing um, the patterns and behaviors in meetings. If you're sitting in a meeting and there's a black woman on your team or a black woman in leadership that's not a part of the discussion, they can bring them in. Um, when a black woman um, says something in a meeting that is quite profound and it's brushed aside or brushed, walked over, um, and then the colleague says something very similar, if not the same, and then it gets recognized, calling that right in the meeting, hey, that's exactly what uh, she just said, you know, let's let's work on that. I mean, really recognizing the contribution. And then finally, uh, if you are in an organization and you know you have empty board seats, if you're looking for people, uh, executives to fill positions, pull up a black woman, call up a black woman, dial up a black woman, look for one on LinkedIn, <laughs> you know, literally start doing the legwork yourself and reaching out. If you don't know any, then do the legwork to pull somebody into your organization to change it. And Lamicia, I would say some of this uh, is not just what happens in the confines of the office space. Are there other spaces for um, allies to do the work, become anti-racist, to encourage strong leadership 
by black women, by others? Sure. Uh, the example I like to use because I work, you know, in the environmental justice sector very heavily. And so I, I use this example often uh, when I do speak to allies. Uh, you know, over 50%, uh, 56% of all people of color live only two miles away from a toxic waste dump landfill. That means poison goes into our rivers, our watersheds, our livestock, which is our food supply. Okay, but a river doesn't stop running just because it left a black neighborhood. And air doesn't stop flowing just because it left out of the black neighborhood. That means you're drinking the same water and breathing in the same air. And the families and the employees and the contract staff that are working as franchise workers, corporation workers that deserve livable wages, that deserve to have their leadership recognized, but also compensated and fair insurance, when they're packaging our food in that poison water that goes in that poison package, it's being shipped to your home. It's being shipped to your grocery store. So it does a, It behooves you to prioritize our people and our leadership because we can tell you where the impact is and how to solve it because we are the impacted. Dr. Neal, what can you share about black men in the leadership space and how they can be allies as well? Oh, we have to recognize the genius of black women in the space to allow and create spaces for them to thrive. You know, much the way that we push forward to try to thrive ourselves, we have to be aware, self-aware of the way that masculinity and patriarchy functions. And just because we're successful doesn't always mean that we're creating spaces for black women. We have to be very intentional in that regard. Dr. Mark Anthony Neal, Lemisha Whittington, Dr. Shante Williams, thank you so much for your time. Even as black women continue to strive for equal treatment and opportunity in boardrooms and C-suites, our country struggles toward fair and equal treatment for black women and men within policing. May 25th of this week marked the one-year anniversary of the police murder of George Floyd. As we reflect on the image of his young daughter, Gianna, making her way through the White House doors that day at the invitation of the president, let's not forget that after a year of conversations against the backdrop of another racial awakening, Congress has yet to pass any meaningful legislation that might reform or hold accountable racial bias in policing or ensure the rights of black Americans to fair and equal treatment by law enforcement. Once again, I want to thank all of today's guests. We invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thanks for watching. Quality public television is made possible through the financial contributions of viewers like you, who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.